0: It's Quarter Mile's Travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Life is a Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? i like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States. The history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and quarter miles travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Welcome back to Quarter Miles Travel. I'm Anita Thomas. And I'm Olivia Vinson. Today we're examining another design from the U.S. Mint State Quarter's program. South Dakota State Quarter features a memorial we're all very familiar with, the Mount Rushmore National Memorial. Construction began in 1927 and it took 14 years to complete. Since then, the memorial has become a major tourist attraction with millions of visitors each year.
1: The 60-foot structure pays tribute to four U.S. Presidents, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt, but did you know they weren't part of the original design? Sculptor Gutzon Borglum worked with South Dakota historians to decide on figures that represented U.S. history but also would appeal to tourists from all over the world, and ideas ranged from Susan B. Anthony to Lewis and Clark.
0: That's amazing to think of that, Olivia, when we now look at the figures that are on Mount Rushmore.
1: And of course, everyone has their own ideas of who would be on their personal Mount Rushmore.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. But it really is an awe-inspiring work of art, unlike many of the country's most popular monuments. But it also raises a lot of questions. Why was Mount Rushmore chosen as the spot for this memorial? Why were these four presidents chosen over other figures from U.S. history? And what's the story behind the secret room we've heard about in movies and online conspiracy theories? What mm. is the story? Mystery there.
1: We talked with Blaine Cordemeyer, Assistant Chief of Interpretation and Education at the Mount Rushmore National Memorial and one of the founding members of the Sculpture Preservation Team, to learn more about the story of Mount Rushmore, from the first design drafts to how it is maintained today. Blaine's been a park ranger for 28 years, with the last 17 at Mount Rushmore, so he knows what he's talking about. Listen as Blaine starts us off with how the idea of Mount Rushmore Memorial came to be.
2: Uh, in the 1920s, um, the state of South Dakota was focused on ranching and uh, farming and mining for the most part, and uh, the our South Dakota State historian, his name was Don Robinson, the very first one ever, he thought that it would be important to try and diversify the state's economy, change the way South Dakota's made their money to a certain extent. So he came up with an idea to get somebody to carve one of the beautiful granite pillars or mountains in the western side of South Dakota, namely the Black Hills. So, it's Don Robinson's idea back in the 19, in the early twenties.
1: And why was Mount Rushmore chosen as the spot?
2: Well, Don Robinson, um, because he was a historian, he he had to find a sculptor. Um, he heard about Gutzon Borglum carving Stone Mountain, Georgia. He was the very first carver very first sculptor of some known, uh, and actually sent Dutton Borg on the telegraph. This okay. telegraph contained pretty simple stuff. Uh, I used to have a copy of it right around here on my somewhere. Okay. Can't find it right now. But it simply stated, uh, I'm looking to carve uh, a piece of granite here in the Black Hills, wondering if you'd be interested. And Gutson replied with, Absolutely, I'll be there soon. Uh, he was, he arrived here, uh, just several months later, and Guts and Mortem chose Mount Rushmore. He chose the ridge line because it faces the morning sun. Um, and also part of that, uh, southern exposure means there's less water on that face. Uh, you know the whole thing about southern versus northern exposure. Southern exposure mountains have less water because of the evaporation effects of the sun on that ridge line. while north-facing ridgelines have more water therefore more trees and more erosion occurs. So we chose not Rushmore because it faced the morning sun, so it had its first light, and because of its southern exposure first, erosional effects, the, the, the smaller erosional effects. And um, because it's large enough for the idea, big granite face, and it is granite. Harvey peak Granite, specifically, is the name of the granite. It's nicely fine-grained, except as sculpture.
0: So how how long did it take them to carve
2: this? Sure. Uh, They started in the spring of, actually, the fall of 1927, and rolled all the way through uh, the fall of 1941. And in that 14-year time span, they worked six and a half years, if you compile all the months together. They didn't work a lot of the winters. They tried one winter, they didn't work many of them. And there were some earlier years that the money, the money did not uh, was not available, so they shut down the sculpture because of lack of funds.
0: I can imagine it was very expensive, but I, I did hear you say um, more than one person. So how many people actually worked on the carving?
2: Over the 14 year process, in, in right at 400 people worked on the memorial. Of course, not all at one time. Um, the work crews ranged from in the, you know, low 20s all the way up into the mid 30s probably. Uh, over that 14 year time span, different crews, different years, depending on money, uh, but a total of 400.
0: And did uh, the sculptor Gutson, did he have his son or something working with him at some point? It seems like I've heard that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Lincoln Borgham, Gutson's son, um, assisted finding the mountain at the the beginning and then pretty much stayed here all the way through the carving process, including times when Gutson would leave. Lincoln was here to oversee the project because in the latter years of the carving, Lincoln knew everything there was to know about carving a a mountain on a sculpture, or excuse me, a sculpture on a mountain, and uh, he proceeded to eventually become the parks, as the sculpture shut down, Lincoln became the National Park Service's first superintendent here at the Memorial.
0: Oh, wow. He did have a big part in it then. Mm
2: -hmm. He was, and he he did more than just work here. Uh, He was the leader of especially in the latter years, leader of, of the work crew. Um, he he gained all of their respects because he worked side by side with them. Uh, he was an incredible man.
0: Sounds fun. Sounds fantastic. And was
1: this work crew mostly people who lived in South Dakota or were they brought in from somewhere else?
2: A few were brought from other locations. Um, Luigi Del Bianco comes to mind. He was an Italian sculptor, but... Uh, and transition to the states. Um, I'm not sure where he came to the states from Italy, but he worked on the mountain. He was brought here by Denson. There are others uh, that were brought here that were sculptors to assist in that sculpting process. To be, you know, the lead sculptors, so to speak, uh, as Benson was the sculptor. But these other were, were prominent sculptors in their own right. Um, but for the most part, the workers were all locals. They were uh, miners, so they knew how to use dynamite back in the day. They knew how to, how to use jackhammers. They were hardened folks that they knew how to work.
0: I would think also, too, that just for people in the surrounding areas, it was probably something that you wanted to be part of. The excitement and all the things that were going on with it, and certainly if you had the skill set also, that you wanted to be a part of it.
2: Yeah, there was that as well. Um and it wasn't there in the beginning years. Uh, that type of attitude transitioned mainly towards the middle to latter end of the calling process. As, as the sculpture began to emerge, people started to buy in. Uh, but in the early years, that, that was, it was simply a job. It was, it was, and it was decent wages, so that's, that's a plus that brought people here. But often, uh, people would show up and they saw the working conditions high on the rich line, and they wouldn't last more than a day, on, mm-hmm. on occasion, uh, just because they couldn't handle the 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 altitude. Um, but for the most part, um, they were able to to last. And some of them, even in the years, uh, in our, should I say the, the the winters, some of them overwintered in the area and just picked up odd jobs so they could go back and work at the memorial. And that it became uh, something that people wanted to do. They wanted to be part of making this really unique, uh, unique
0: thing. Well, tell us a little bit more about the early years of it and the attitude in the community. Did uh, people feel as though just this should not be taking place? Were they kind of not in support of it? Were they concerned about what all of the construction Mm -hmm. and the Um, You know, just what that would all entail and how it would change their community. What what were the attitudes? Sure. Uh,
2: There were some detractors initially. Um, There were some uh, environmentalist groups were mainly uh, kind of um, related to to the church and to religions that thought that this, that human beings should not deface something that uh, the Lord had created. Uh, of course, they, they were religious-based, so that was their perspective and completely understandable. Um, and then as this was simply just a work location, guts and Borgren tried to get more people to the mountain. He loves having big, grand dedications. There were two dedications. One, dedication before they even started working on the mountain. Uh, and then f- another dedication later in the same year um, where Calvin Coolidge was up here and gave drill bits to Hudson Borgam when he ascended to the top of the mountain and put them directly to work. That was the second to last, det- or excuse me, that was the second dedication on the Memorial. But over time, um, people started to, to pretty much buy into this idea. Um, there were many people who had challenges with Hudson because uh, he was um, a polarizing type individual, um, and even those that that didn't care for him so much began to realize what this would eventually do for the state. As the sculpture began to emerge, they recognized that this could really do what Borden wanted it to do and what Don Robinson wanted it to do. So the the attitudes changed over time, and and today today we have uh, three million people a year on average. Come to see you tomorrow, and the population of the state of South Dakota is eight hundred and fifty thousand
0: mm, wow <laughs> that does say a lot, but going back to uh to gutson what what was his personality like um and how was he seen in the community just as a as a person as a man? wow
2: uh-huh. uh gutson was exceptionally passionate uh, passionate about his art. Passionate about his, his cause, his mission. Uh, passionate about his family. And these passions uh, sometimes manifested themselves in a negative way um, if a, a, a worker um, or anybody that he had to deal with for the most part didn't see the automatic benefit uh, to the state and, and just by having a sculpture amongst them here in the Black Hills, it, it was not always a good thing um, for the relationship between Gutson and, and that person. Um, and, but again, um, those politicians that that needed to um, have relationships, conversation with Gutson, they began to realize that it was gonna accomplish what Don Robinson thought it should. And so they bought into Gutson Morgan, realizing that this is gonna do this thing that Don Robinson wanted, bring people to the state. And uh they petitioned government, they put forward um, bills in Congress to bring money to South Dakota to the sculpture, uh, even though they had challenges with Gutson. They recognized his genius and bought in. Hmm.
1: Interesting. And how were the four figures selected? Were there any other ideas that came up and that were passed on?
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, The original idea of of a carving of Mount Rushmore only included three faces they were George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Abraham Lincoln. In that concept of Mount Rushmore, There was also to be an entablature writing, actually, on the sculpture, etched into the rock. Um, But because of flaws in the granite, um, the idea of the entablature eventually had to be canceled, and that, because Lincoln had to go there. Um, So that, when Lincoln went out to what would be the right end, then there was a spot for Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and that's, uh, Peter Roosevelt, as I mentioned, was not in the original idea. And by the way, Guts and Borgham chose who would go on the mountain and why. And there were uh, others who thought people like uh, Susan B. Anthony um, could be a potential idea for a carving here. There were also um, others suggested. The original idea, going back to John Robinson, John Robinson thought that Western heroes would be a good draw be a good uh, subject matter for the covering. People like Red Cloud, um, Calamity Jane, Waldo Hickok, um, Lewis and Clark, among others. But when Gunson bought into the idea, he changed that idea to presidents because he thought that more people would come to see presidents. And if you recall what the idea of what's was supposed to do for the people of the state, Don Robinson jumps in with presidents and, and gives the okay and that would be a, a better idea for the sculpture. So others were suggested um, and people still suggest folks today. Obviously you know, it's an it's obvious conversation to hear, have at the memorial because it, it sparks interest. When you put four guys on a ridge line uh, people always want to know who's going to be next. They think mm-hmm. that there's no option for that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, what about the Native American community? Did they was there any pushback with them, or did they embrace mm-hmm. this? Where 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 do they fall within this?
2: Well, initially, um, back during the beginning of the carving and so on, um, unfortunately, the Native community really did not have what we said. Um, but during and and post carving um especially now that you know there's crazy horse just a a few short miles from here um you can't see crazy horse from here by the way. the other large sculpture here in the black hills you can't see it from much more, but it's pretty much twenty minutes from here um, the native community back at the beginning however didn't have a voice they didn't have and if they did it wasn't heard um but over time, because of, uh, you probably know about the Treaty of 1868 and the Black Hills uh, settlement, um, the, the Black Hills um, continued legal battles about who, the ownership of the Black Hills, because the, the land was given in the Treaty of 1868 to the Lakota people, um, specifically all the way from the Missouri River, all the way out to the front range of the, the Rocky Mountains, down into Nebraska, up into North Dakota. This was the Great Reservation in that time, it, through the Treaty of 1868. But when, just a couple years later, uh, uh, an army cavalryman, um, with his expedition, specifically Lieutenant Colonel Custer, George Armstrong Custer, found gold outside of what is today Custer South Dakota, um, and that word gets out, the, the prospectors and miners and, and, um, people following all those caravans coming to the Black Hills to try and find their little nugget of gold for big money, um, that for the most part negated the Treaty of 1868. Originally the, the, then the cavalry were, were commissioned to try and keep the settlers out, but you can't keep that many people out. And eventually mines swung up. People judging the streams, trying to find their gold everywhere, uh, and then it was the um, just the the conflict that that creates um, is what sparked the debate and, and sparked the wars and led to the, an issue that's still on hand today: the ownership of the black House. Mm. So there, that that is an ongoing battle still happens today. There was a there was a the court case. Uh, I think it was in the eighties that uh, the judge um, is reportedly quoted as saying something like this. He said, "This is the largest travesty uh, committed on any group of people by the American government ever." Um, that it was something like that, mm-hmm. and it was a uh, court battle that yielded to the to the native uh, to the other people. Uh, I believe it was $15 million. And that money still sits in bank accounts today, uh, collecting interest, because the Lakota do not want uh, the money. The Lakota want the land. So it's a a debate that will go on for who knows how long, Um, but that's where it sits now.
0: And speaking of the Black Hills, I mean, there is a national forest there that is part of... how, How is that connected to Mount Rushmore?
2: Uh the National Park Service came into being here at Mount Rushmore in the nineteen thirties. It uh the it the carving process was uh um, became the jurisdiction of the National Park Service. I think it was in thirty three, um, when this became a national monument excuse me, national memorial. And from that point forward, um uh, the the National Park Service Um, because the land uh, reverted to Forest Service land, and then it's fairly easy to to transfer land from one department agency to another. So the Park Service came in, and it's been a the Park Service service jurisdiction from that point forward.
0: So someone coming to see Mount Rushmore can take in also to the Black Hills National Forest, or how, how do people kind of experience the two?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, there are several park sites, including state parks, within the Black Hills National Forest. Uh, The Black Hills National Forest is, in total, about 120 miles north to south and about 60 miles east to west. And within that square mileage, there is Mount Rushmore National Memorial, Devil's Tower National Monument, uh, Jewel Cave National Monument, Wind Cave National Park, um Custer State Park, Crazy Horses in there, and there are several other organizations that are here within the Black Hills National Forest. And then, neighboring, we have Miniman Missile National Forest Site, which came on the way to the Cold War, and Badlands National Park. Just, both of them are just out on the plains east of the, the Black Hills. So there's lots of opportunities for tourism here in the area.
1: Now, there is some interest online, of course, about the secret room on Mount Rushmore, so can you tell us more uh, yeah. about that?
2: <laughs> well, the secret room is a secret. Uh,
0: <laughs> None of it's
2: online, isn't yeah. <laughs> it? Uh, well, you probably heard it seen it referenced in um, Nichols Cage movie, um, 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 what's it called?
1: National Treasure.
2: National Treasure 2, yes, Book of Secrets, that's the... Um simply put behind well, my archmoor is actually taller and bigger than just the sculpture the vantage point that you see my archmoor from, the front it looks like the sculpted portion of my archmoor is actually the tallest ridge and that's not true um, the ridge immediately behind my archmoor is actually taller um, and it Separating those two ridges is a is a pretty deep canyon, it's about sixty foot deep. And in the opposite wall of that canyon, in other words, not into the sculpture, but in the other side, is the beginning of what Gutson Borden wanted to uh, place in that wall, in that rock, and that was simply put or simply named the Hollow Records. Gutson if had completed the hall of records, he wanted government the government to actually place the original documents of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights in that granite enclosed mountain. Because it was never complete, they only worked on it uh, summer of in through the summer of thirty-nine. It's not even close to complete. It's a it's a hole, about a seventy-five foot deep hole in the rock behind the sculpture. Um, however, in 1998, to complete that idea of Gutson's descendants and the Park Service and our friends group, the Mount Rushmore National Moral Society, they came together and sank a four-foot-deep hole at the mouth of the Hall of Records. And in that hole, it's a kind of a rectangle hole, there are 16 porcelain enamel entablatures. so big pieces of steel with baked-on enamel, and on that baked-on enamel are the entire text of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and we have to get us the redraft at Borgham's idea. And then we put an entire history of the first 150 years of our nation, which is what Gutson wanted the sculpture to represent for the first 150 years of our nation, and um, and what we believe the mountain means to the country today, and who the workers were, who Gutson was, and, and Lincoln, of course, among others. And those entablatures are in a wooden box, a teakwood box, which doesn't run if it's protected, teakwood, that is. And on the outside of that is, inside that hole, the outside layer is a titanium box. So all that's in that titanium box, and it's covered with a granite capstone. With one of my favorite quotes from Guts and Boredom. it goes like this. Let us place there, carved high, as close to heaven as we can, the words of our leaders, their faces, to show posterity what manner of men they were, and, breathe, and then breathe a prayer that these records will endure until the wind and rain alone shall wear them away. So all that's in the mouth of the Hall of Records. Um, and we have a book right here on the property that tells you all about the hall, and it, it shows you uh, images of the back of the Hall of Records. And you can actually go there online too. Um, just we have a had a company called CyArk laser scan the entire sculpture. Um, so we have a sub centimeter, three dimensional accurate um, laser scan of the mountain, and in that imagery, there is a laser scan of the Hall of Records and a completely phototextured scan of the whole record. So you can actually go in there if you want to. Shoot. Just go to sciarc.org, C-R-A-R-C-A dot O-R-G, and you can bring up Mount Rushmore, and you can bring up the laser scans of the mountain, and you can go there virtually.
0: Very fascinating. Now, I have a, uh, two two sort of questions that might go hand in hand. Uh, but first of all, i ask, are people able to climb Mount Rushmore?
2: Um, the sculpted portion of Mount Rushmore, absolutely not. It is a very close area, um, but there are ridge lines behind the Mount Rushmore that are I guess are, aren't really part of Mount Rushmore. So, so I guess the answer is no. Mm-hmm. You can't find Mount Rushmore, um, but there are granite spires. You know the same types of spires that that exist all over here in the central core of the Black Hills um, that are conical. They are Uh, a huge recreational area back there for all manners of climbing. Um, But the boundary of the sculpture is off-limits, and there it's heavily signed.
0: I bet. Well, it's a good thing, too. (laughs) that it keep people from trying to do it, knowing that they should not. Well, and the second part to that, um, I just wanted to know, especially if people could climb it, what's the maintenance, but still I guess even without people having access to climbing it, what type of maintenance is required, or is there any maintenance that's required to keep the sculptures in good condition? Is there, is there a necessity for that kind of thing?
2: Sure. Um, the maintenance started with Dr. Gorgel. Choosing, Choosing the ridge line. Choosing the southern exposure. Um, he chose the southern exposure, of course, because of light, but whether he knew it or not, a southern exposure, as we talked about earlier, is better for, uh, evaporation off the rock base, so there's limited moisture there to begin with. But what moisture does exist on the mountain, especially in the wintertime, we do our best to keep the cracks sealed, Um cracks, especially the cracks that sit on a Uh, A horizontal plane, so on the tops of the heads, and on Washington's left shoulder, among other places. We do our best to keep those um, horizontal locations sealed up. We have a couple of means to do that. Um, The vertical cracks on the mount, so the cracks that present themselves on an upper right, up and down face, we do our best to leave those open. So that if the water gets in, it is allowed to get out. That prevents them frost heating from grabbing that water and expanding it as it freezes. So that's one, one technique that we use on the of today to keep the water out of the cracks. Um, another technique that we have used, you, you heard me talk about laser scanning. Um, the predecessor to laser scanning is called photogrammetry. Simply put, um, if you take a bunch of two-dimensional high-def images from various vantage points, uh, many different vantage points, and you can piece them all together so it looks like a 3D. We created that model back in 1998, and then examined that photogrammetric, photogrammetric, if that's even a word, um, model, um, and examined each one of the cracks. In the sculpture, um, when you examine the cracks, you can obviously see that some of these cracks combine together on the surface to, at least on the surface, create an individual rock block. And how they correspond inside the granite, we don't know yet. But on the surface, you can see that there's individual rock blocks. They actually are in that first mapping of that photogrammetry. It shows that there are twenty. Two individual rock blocks within the sculpture. Not every part of the sculpture is an, is part of an individual rock block. Most of it is actually the, just a part of the mountain, so it's still connected. But in some locations, there's individual rock blocks on the surface. So we we then did what's called strike and dip analysis. We examined the lower ray of each one of those rock blocks, lower crack, and examined, uh, basically, put a strike and dip analysis meter on each crack. And and that told us that if that rock block, as we're examining it, if it wanted to move, which direction it would move? And some of the rock blocks, um, the strike and dip tells us that it will just slope and is pushed by gravity into into the mountain. But some of them, if they chose to move, would move out of the sculpture. So we found three of those. Those are called key blocks. If they chose to move, they would move out of the mountain. So we right away put monitors that monitor 24-7 those individual rock blocks uh, and watch them change and move. Because granite moves, it expands and contracts. It's thermodynamically related. So it expands in the heat of the day and contracts with the cold of the night. And then also, on a larger scale, it expands through the course of a summer with the heating that occurs and contracts in the cold of winter. So far, it's an entire S curve that's all thermodynamically related. And so far, I'm happy to report that there is no net change in the width of any crack that we monitor.
0: That's amazing.
2: They expand and contract at the same distance every year. And the the widest, the the most movement that we see is actually on a crack that's related to the first Jefferson location. And it expands and contracts the distance. Of the width of a dime, wow. so you look at you look at the diamond edge, mm-hmm. and that's the expensive contraction rate.
0: A lot, a lot of science goes into that, I guess.
2: Um, a lot of a lot of geology, geology and a lot of science and a lot of engineering.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, you certainly want this monument to be preserved for years and years to come. But mm-hmm. I know there's some other things on the back of the state quarter, but certainly we're we'll talking with you about Mount Rushmore. Do you know anything about that whole process of the selection of what would be on the back of the South Dakota State Quarter? I mean, I don't can't imagine how there would be mm-hmm. any argument <laughs> about what would be on the Yeah, back I don't the back have a quarter. I don't have
2: a quarter right on me, but isn't is isn't there a pheasant on the back above the sculpture?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. There is.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well the pheasant obviously is the state board of South Dakota. Uh-huh. And it is—it's uh, an exotic bird. In other words, it's not native to South Dakota. Um, I don't know when it was introduced to the state, but uh, South Dakota makes quite a bit of money off um, hunting its state bird. South Dakota is the is the destination place for pheasant hunters.
0: I didn't know that. Any particular yeah, part of I South don't- Dakota?
2: Uh, pretty much all the way up and down the central part of the state. The Black Hills really isn't good habitat for pheasants. There are a couple um, which would be outside of the Black Hills. Um, the pheasant really enjoys um, uh, farmland, and there isn't much farmland up here in the Black Hills. But as soon as you step outside the, the farmland up in their hills, um, you step go east from here, and um, you don't have to go much farther than even the town wall when you're starting to get into pheasant country. And then the farther you go east, you get into the Missouri River drainage and all that. There's all kinds of pheasants up and down in that area specifically. I'm not going to list the communities, but... Uh, and then up in the north, the northeastern South Dakota, there's pheasants all over out here. I grew up uh, in eastern South Dakota, so I grew up hunting pheasants.
0: Well, that's that's, that's a very interesting. A little unknown fact, especially for probably folks back back this way uh, here in Georgia. So, what is that experience like for people
2: coming? Uh, for most, it's a destination place. It's a it's a bucket list place. Mm-hmm. It's a gotta see this place kind of kind of feeling. Um, I, we and and that expectation built throughout a person's life. Um, they start hearing about Mount Rushmore in grade school. Yeah. Uh, when they start to learn about the president and often where you know, the sculpture is in textbooks. So they begin to learn especially about Washington want to get very early on in their curriculum. And so the idea of coming here and actually seeing them starts early with people. So they want to start getting here as soon as they can. As soon as they're financially able to, to travel, more or more begins to be on people's ID, in, in people's thoughts as, as far as getting to that location, getting here. So that expectation is, is something that we try and meet. We try and meet people's expectations, and that's difficult to do, but we do our best to do that. We have an evening lighting ceremony that, that focuses on the history of our nation, and, and every, every night of the summer, a at, at park ranger steps out on stage and does a 10-minute oration that talks about some manner of patriotism, whether it be the Star Spangled Banner, how that was created, uh, whether it be the flag or the song, our national anthem, um, or just anything related to the four presidents and their lives, and bring out the stories of their lives in this oration, this 10-minute presentation. Mm-hmm. Is, is something that we do here. The conclusion of that ceremony is what I'm specifically speaking of when I talk talk about patriotism and and military service because we invite the veterans out of the audience to take down the the nation's flag, our our colors, every night of the summer. So to have these veterans come and be recognized on stage or wherever it happens to be um, is one of those moments you really got experience. It's hard to describe the, the upwelling of emotion and, and patriotism that occurs at that event—that's the evening line ceremony. Yeah, it uh, starts to Friday Memorial Day weekend it runs all the way through September.
0: Well, that's fantastic because it was—it was, it was It's—is it still called the Shrine of uh,
2: Democracy? Shrine of Democracy, mm-hmm. yes, ma'am.
0: And also, too, you—you you have the Avenue of Flags, which speaks mm-hmm. to the patriotic side of things as well.
2: Yes, the Avenue of Flags with 56 flags because uh, we have the districts commonwealths and territories in the United States of America represented there as well. Um, just so you know, for your listeners, we're going to be have, under some construction. We are going to be completely open to visitation during this construction, but we are constructing, uh, reconstructing the avenue that people walk up. Uh, we have a paper system, so that paper system that's becoming uh, difficult to manage. Uh, the person hours into it just keep, with the maintenance is alone is, is a nightmare. But, so we're changing to a decorative cement with a better drainage system. And that starts this fall in like November, December. And goes all the way for about a year and a half, um, through next summer. So we'll be transitioning. We're still gonna have the evening line ceremony. We're still gonna do all the programming. We're gonna focus more on the things that you don't always get to do at Mount more. Like, go to the Sculpture Studio. We're also gonna have uh, a reenactor. We have reenactors every year for Independence Day. This year we're having, starting next next summer I should say. Next summer we're having a reenactor named Gib Young. He reenacts Theodore Roosevelt as his life's work. Um, we're gonna have him starting like the second week in June all the way through August, uh, reenacting Theodore Roosevelt here on the property full costume, full, full dress stage and first person interpretation all summer along. So that will be part of the um, the experience of our visitors for next summer.
0: That sounds fantastic. And of course I know the National Park Service and things like that are places where uh, people can get more information but do you have something to share specifically for um Mount Rushmore Memorial, how people can get more information?
2: Our our website is npsgovernor slash m-o-r-u, or just search us Mount Rushmore, Hit make sure get to the National Park Service site. We have all the information that you'll require for your visit, you can find there. Um, also, we're gonna be posting pictures from the construction on our Facebook site, um, which is, you know, just Google us on Facebook and you can pick us up. Um, uh, we'll be broadcasting the process, the progress of the of the construction. Again, we are going to be completely open, open and available to all of our visitors. And we're even doing more things about the historic nature of Mount Rushmore. Because Mount Rushmore's been here, and the idea started as a, as we talked about back in the twenties. So we're going to be focusing on the, the historic aspect of the memorial through mm-hmm. through over next year.
0: One of our favorite parts of this story was to hear about how South Decodians were at first skeptical that such a feat could be accomplished in the Black Hills. But over the course of construction, with so many locals contributing their skills and hard work, it became a great source of state pride.
1: And although Gutzon Borglin wasn't always popular among his crew, his son Lincoln had grown up around them and earned their respect by working right alongside them. It's said that Gutson hurriedly appointed Lincoln to a high-status role, even though he was inexperienced working with Granite. But due to his humble attitude and willingness to learn, the crew around him had no problem helping him learn along the way. One example of the way Lincoln treated the crew in return was that on baseball game days, he would park his car near the hoisting station so that the hoist operator could use the car radio to listen to baseball scores and call them out to the crew while they were at work.
0: I really like that. That's such a cool little tidbit of information to know about him.
1: Pass the time while you're, you know, just carving a national memorial.
0: (laughs) Hanging out with your buddies, your friends. Yes. (laughs) But eventually Lincoln became more involved with construction than even his father. And when Gutson died in 1941, Lincoln led the crew to completing the project. Even though he lived with the repercussions of breathing granite dust for all of those years, he was proud of what he and the crew had accomplished. PBS shared that Lincoln once said, I've climbed over every inch of that damn mountain and I still get a lump in my throat every time I see it. So much pride I'm sure that they all felt working together. And over those years, I can just imagine the bonds that were formed as well between the workers, and Lincoln obviously became a really favorite part, I think, of, of the stories that come out of the construction of the monument.
1: Yes, and you still remember today, you see his name all over the National Memorial. He's still a big part of what they do.
0: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the Visitor Center bears his name.
1: So there's plenty to do, starting with the Lincoln Borglum Visitor Center at Mount Rushmore, But there's also a lot to do around Mount Rushmore, too. You can really enjoy the beautiful Black Hills National Forest. Mount Rushmore is located within the forest. And there's over a million acres to explore. So there's hiking and biking and beautiful nature. But there's also a really cool place you can stay nearby.
0: There is. There's a new place. It's called Under the Canvas Mount Rushmore. And it's all about glamping. So if you're into camping but you want a little something extra along with Mount Rushmore and all of the things that you can see in the Black Hills Forest, you can also go glamping and stay in one of their really, really cool tents there.
1: Yes. Under under the canvas. And if you're not into camping, but you kind of want that authentic nature experience without, you know, the bugs and sleeping on rocks and (laughs) (laughs) all of that, maybe glamping is for you. And so you can enjoy the Black Hills National Forest around you, And also from these camping sites, you have a great view of Mount Rushmore.
0: That is true, that is very true. You can do hiking, biking tours, rock climbing, kayaking, so many different activities. As you mentioned, Olivia, there's so many things that you can do right there as part of under the canvas. I like that name as well.
1: Yeah, it kind of adds to the glamping mystique.
0: (laughs) It really does, it really does. And just in that whole area, there's so many things to see and do. I mean, family attractions like the Reptile Gardens, there are five National Park Service sites in that whole region. I know we've talked about, you know, how much we enjoy, how much we want to hear more about like the Badlands.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, the the iconic Badlands in their own way are not that far away from Mount Rushmore. So if you feel like, oh, I don't want to, you know, make a trip over just seeing one memorial, you know, because that's kind of a you go one day and and what else? But there really is a lot to do in the area.
0: There is a lot to do in the area. And to learn more about Under the Canvas, go to com and check it all out. And maybe that would be your way to, to see it as well. Do some glancing. <laughs> we love that. Now, as we always say, thank you so much for joining us with Quarter Mile's Travel. We simply love bringing all of these stories, kind of digging a little bit deeper to find out some of the stories, some of the history, some of those little unknown things about each of the state quarters. And Olivia, actually, we're expanding it even into into the U.S. Mint quarters that feature America the Beautiful as well.
1: Yes, the U.S. Mint has a couple other state program or beyond states, different programs for beautiful monuments around the country and also the U.S. territory. So we aren't going to stop when we finish the 50 states. There's still a lot to uncover again just with a quarter
0: just with a quarter who knew you could be so inspired well i think we knew it so that's why we wanted to make it to <laughs> so that now uh, they can also be so inspired to go and check out each of the states and use a little old quarter to be inspired to do so so thank you guys for joining us for this episode where we explored the south dakota state quarter and we hope that you'll join us for the next episode where we turn over another quarter and be inspired to turn that quarter into an adventure. Mile's Travel would like to extend a very special thank you to the following people, companies, and organizations. The South Dakota Department of Tourism, Mount Rushmore National Memorial, Keegan Carter, and our very special guest, Blaine Quartermire.